0: Welcome to the Indy Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm Riley Snyder, and this week I'm joined by Michelle Rendells to talk about one of the most pressing issues facing the Nevada legislature, affordable housing. Later, we'll hear from J.D. Klippenstein and Katana Barnes from Action, a northern Nevada-based social justice group that's focused on housing policy this legislative session.
1: In pursuit of our mission to provide reader-supported, nonpartisan news and information, the Nevada Independent sometimes accepts sponsorships of events and the podcast. Sponsors have no input into topics or content. This episode of Indy Matters is sponsored by the Nevada Mining Association.
0: So, Michelle, maybe a good place to start. We hear a lot of headlines and a lot of talk about affordable housing. What, what is affordable housing in a nutshell?
2: Well, I think affordable housing is something that's not going to take up a huge chunk of your paycheck. And I, I think kind of a rule of thumb in, in personal finances, don't let your housing take up more than about a quarter of your, your pay. So I'm not sure if there's a technical definition for it, but you've got to have, um, you know, the general median price of a house has got to be sort of within uh, reach of the average worker. And we're finding that right now in Nevada, especially in places like Northern Nevada, that is not what's happening.
0: Yeah, I think the the um, metrics that the legislatures kind of operating on is that if your housing costs are more than 30% of your income, you're considered what's called housing burden. So that's not good, basically. The, the, the idea is to try to avoid that. And in a lot of ways and in a lot of metrics, Nevada is kind of like behind the ball when it comes to affordable housing. For folks who are... Uh, the, the kind of like standard metric here is average median income, which is a very wonky way of saying that's how much people make on average in your county. So in Clark County, it's around like $55,000, I believe. And for folks who make less than that, finding affordable housing is really difficult. If you're making, I believe, it's less than 30% of that, there's only around 15 units for every 100 that are needed. So uh, this is, in a lot of ways, it's a people talk about housing. What housing really is, is a healthcare problem because a lot of these people who don't have money or don't have access to live somewhere, like it's hard to have good health outcomes and it's hard to continue and have a productive life if you're homeless or if you're couch surfing or living in your car. So it's uh, it's a very big problem. As you mentioned, it's facing both Northern Nevada and, and Southern Nevada.
2: Yeah. And that's such a good point because one of the big kind of trends in addressing homelessness has been this concept of housing first. I know they've done in Utah. And it's like the idea that instead of trying to force people to get their act together and maybe, you know, get off their addiction, you should provide them the housing first. And that's going to let other pieces fall into place. Because when you're stressed out about where am I going to sleep tonight? You know, is this bridge going to be safe? Am I going to get attacked? Is there going to be a snowstorm? You know, a million other things. Imagine the the toll that's going to take on your ability to really do anything else and and mentally overcome whatever other adverse circumstances are happening in your life. Um, so the Nevada legislature has really taken up more homelessness and housing bills than I've seen in my four sessions of covering the Nevada legislature. And I think it's just a product of it being on everyone's mind, especially with kind of what we think of as the Tesla crunch, where we've got a lot of new people, a lot of new jobs up in northern Nevada, but the housing just kind of isn't keeping up. And then we've seen, you know, even Kelvin Atkinson mentioned on the Senate floor when he was Senate Majority Leader was, you know, I really want to tackle the issue of youth homelessness. And that was really kind of the first time that we've heard that from a leader kind of being the the capstone issue that they're going to focus on. So there's been a whole lot of bills going on. Uh, One I want to mention, it was Housing and Homelessness Awareness Day. I believe it was yesterday. We're recording the podcast on a Wednesday. And there was actually a candlelight vigil that was held. They proceeded from a church in downtown Garson, and they came to the legislature and heard some speeches. They were holding candles. Um, And what this was in honor of was the 400-plus Nevadans that died on the streets in the past year. Uh, So it was in their honor. And so that was sort of a kickoff to this um, whole day of hearing a variety of bills that had to do with homelessness and housing issues. Uh, So we're going to go ahead and throw it to an interview that we did with some folks from a group called ACTION. This is a social justice advocacy group focused on northern Nevada. In this session, they're really taking a special focus on the issues of homelessness and housing affordability.
1: Yeah, I'm JD Klippenstein. I'm the executive director
3: of ACTION. I'm Katana Barnes, and I'm a volunteer with Action. And then briefly, I struggle with maintaining my home. Mm -hmm. I was married for 31 years, and my ex-husband didn't want me to work. So when we got divorced after 31 years, and I entered the workforce, I was put right at the bottom, which was very hard to overcome. I had no savings, I didn't ask for alimony. So I was on my own, and it's been a struggle.
2: And this also intersects with the minimum wage, right? Correct.
3: Yes, min- uh, minimum wage would definitely be helpful to increase because it would help create a buffer to prevent that homelessness, whereas currently at the minimum wage we have now, it would take 72 hours a week to meet the requirements just for a one-bedroom apartment.
2: Tell me how you, you know, survived during that period
3: Um, Fortunately, I live with my youngest son because neither one of us can live alone. We can't afford it. So even though he wasn't gainfully employed at the time, some family and friends did step up and help us financially or we would have been homeless.
2: You've gotten involved in the activist world since then. (laughs) Tell, Tell me what brought you up here to the legislative session.
3: To champion for the minimum wage bill and for the affordable housing tax bill so that it would incentivize developers to bring in more affordable housing and the, obviously the minimum wage would help sustain that affordable housing.
2: As the economy has pr- improved, how have you guys seen the issue of homelessness change?
3: Well, I mean, I
1: think it's just a widening of, of, of the have and the have-nots, right? So the, the economy has improved for a lot of people, but it the way that it has improved is it pushed folks on the margins further into the margins, right? So you're seeing a skyrocketing cost of living because uh, of some folks is some folks economic situations improved greatly right and we have a housing crisis and because of a shortage house of housing and the housing that is being built is being built at luxury rates because people can some people can afford those but a lot of people can't so I think you're just you're just kind of seeing like a squeeze of the middle class and you're seeing a lot of people end up Further down the rung than they thought they would be, and the folks who are already further down the rungs are finding themselves in weekly motels or living in homeless shelters. And then there are some folks who are benefiting, but there I think there's a lot more folks hurting from the the kind of economic development we're seeing than, and than I not.
3: I think that's where I can speak to that part. Where yes, there are more jobs, but they're not the type of the the housing is going this way. So every time they bring the income up, they bring the housing just that much further. Out of reach, and the requirements. I know uh, one place that I looked at wanted five times the cost of rent as your income. You know, and so that the, even though they're bringing, they might be bringing more jobs, that cost of living is just outpaced with the um,
1: wages. Stagnant.
3: Will yeah, sustain.
1: It's, yeah, it's stagnant wages for sure. Mm-hmm. Market rate housing. The market will never build affordable housing, right? So folks who say, well, just let the market take care of it. It never has and never will build housing for folks who are at a certain income level. Same thing with minimum wage. There's a, this natural idea that wages will increase doesn't account for the folks who are in the part of the, the job sector that, that, that it's not going to get an increase unless we make it a mandatory minimum. And those are the folks that I think we, we need to ensure that can, can have a place to live, that they can be a contributing member of our community, that they are not an afterthought. Right? I think we should measure how we are as a community based off of how we're treating folks that are in those situations versus, you know, how many tech companies we can recruit into the area. I, I, I think that we're we're using the wrong scale if that is what we think means that we're improving because we have Apple and Google and Tesla in the midst of uh, the, the highest homeless population we've had in decades and skyrocketing rent. There's there's some someone's moral compass is, is not calibrated correctly. I think.
2: Do you feel there needs to be different approaches for, say, the folks that are chronically homeless um, and the folks that are sort of, you know, just pushed out of housing? What do you
3: think? I would say definitely, yes, there needs to be more than one approach to anything in, in order for things to be successful, especially following through where you might be able to get somebody some immediate temporary help, but then they're going to fall through the Cracks immediately following that.
1: Mm-hmm. And I would add too. I think housing insecurity and, and homelessness are, are deeply interrelated, but they're not the same thing, right? So uh, if you're trying to figure out how if someone who's been homeless for years or someone who is uh, chronically homeless outside the interventions and the resources that are available to them, we need they're different than someone who we need to keep stably housed or who needs to be able to find affordable housing. So we have to think about like mental health resources. We have to think about med- you know, medical care, healthcare intersection for folks who are chronically homeless. We need to think about really strengthening and truly resourcing so- direct social service providers at the capacity that they need. Like that's, that's part of it. But we also know that for a lot of other f- folks, we need to be making sure there's affordable housing. For those folks who are ready to transition out, they need affordable housing. But just building affordable housing in and of itself isn't gonna address some of these underlying issues around homelessness. At the same time, if we don't build affordable housing, we're gonna keep hitting this barrier. Like providers in our area, you know, there's the waiting lists for housing are years long, they're closed, they're not even taking more folks. I think our housing authority in Reno has 300 families holding a Section 8 voucher, like a voucher that would pay for rent. They can't find a landlord to accept it. So that's an example of someone who's probably transitioned, they're ready for more stable housing and they're holding money that could pay for it, then then there's this huge bottleneck. So I think you have to think about them as different parts of the spectrum, and uh, building more affordable housing, increasing wages, it will help someone who's trying to get out of homelessness, but there's also some other critical needs that are really focused and strategic around the experience of homelessness in general.
2: Now, my understanding is that Governor Sisolik has allocated about $10 million in his budget for credits to affordable housing, um, and that's going to be... Yeah, the so concept is gonna be discussed.
1: Yeah, it's 10 today. million a year for the next four years. It's essentially a pilot program to see the impact that it has. And it would be a transferable tax credit available developers to developers to build affordable housing. It's essentially a mirror of a really successful federal program. That's the federal low income tax credit is one of the main drivers for affordable housing development in the country. This creates like another state level layer that would operate essentially the same way it would be administered by the housing division, just like the, the federal level tax credit.
2: That was JD Klippenstein and Katana Barnes, both with action, which is a social justice advocacy group based in Northern Nevada. Uh, We thank them for being on the the show and we'll, hear more from them a bit later in the podcast, Riley, I really wanted to talk about some of the specific ways that the legislators are trying to address the housing crunch. Because as we know, it's a pretty complicated issue that isn't really solved quickly when you're talking about building a new house or changing a federal policy or something like that. So let's start with what's fresh in your mind, which is yesterday's hearing on an affordable Housing tax credit. Tell me a little bit about first of all what's in Cecilax's budget and what this could actually do.
0: Yeah, so a very obvious and stupid thing that I found out yesterday um, is that state of Nevada cannot extend money like by itself to a housing project or anything. It's prohibited from giving money to like a private entity or individual. So to get around that, the state offers tax credits for various purposes, and that's what it's trying to do here. This would allocate $10 million every year in transferable tax credits to people developing uh, affordable housing. There's a lot of definitions that go into this. It's kind of set up with the same rules for uh, the federal low-income housing tax credit um, in terms of eligibility. Basically, these are just rent-subsidized houses, so they're uh, typically targeted to people making less than the average income in a certain area. They're required to meet certain uh, restrictions. And various rules in order to get these funds, and they have to keep their rents at that level for up to 30 years. So this bill was presented by Senator Julia Ratty, who said if approved, it would probably result in around 600 additional units of affordable housing statewide. Um, It's not entirely paying for these housing developments. I think it's an important point to understand. There's a lot of different sources that go in. One of the people who presented it called it like a lasagna because there's just so many layers. Or if you're a Shrek fan, it's an onion because there's a lot of layers. Um, but there's federal, uh, there's dollars that go into this. There's a uh, housing and urban development dollars that go into this. There's the actual developer money that goes into it. So it's kind of a very complex pie, but the point of having these tax credits, according to Senator Ratty and the state's housing division is that it kind of lets them get over like the top, the, the metaphor that was used. And again, I need metaphors here. Cause this is really confusing is like, if you are going to a dollar store and you only have 90 cents, you can't buy anything because you don't have the full dollar. So by extending these tax credits, this is like essentially finding a dime in your car seat or wherever that will get you to that dollar that'll allow you to like bring the the remainder of cash you had to actually make one of these projects happen. So it's kind of a lot of tortured metaphors here with lasagna and with um, dollar stores. But the point is that they're trying to get at least two more affordable housing developments in the queue and in development if uh, if this does pass.
2: Well, it just seems like really a drop in the bucket if we're only housing 600 additional families and there's 3 million people in the state of Nevada and how many below you know the median housing
0: yeah it's i think it was acknowledged that this isn't a silver bullet it's not going to fix everyone's problems there's a lot more bills out there that that amend provisions related to like tenant rights there's a lot of things that have to do with like changing definitions as to what affordable housing is i think this is one of the first times like the legislature has actually taken this issue seriously senator Ratty, who i mentioned uh, chaired an interim committee that just met for an entire year and a half, just studying this one issue and trying to come up with proposals. And this is sort of their their most notable one because it does have that $10 million is obviously a very, it's a lot of money, but it's not going to fix everyone's problem. But I think what she said is that this is the first time the state is kind of like putting some of its own skin in the game. Before this, all the the subsidies you would get for rent subsidized housing or for affordable housing developments came from the federal government. So this is kind of like the first time the state's actually trying to do something. Is it going to fix everything overnight? No, but there's really nothing the legislature can do that's going to fix everything overnight on a a specific issue.
2: There was also an interesting hearing that you watched last week, and basically the gist of it was trying to give tenants more rights, more time before they get evicted. seems to be also along the lines of addressing a lot of folks that are sort of living on the edge of being able to make ends meet. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and the pretty strong bra- backlash it got from the property management and real estate community?
0: Yeah, it's kind of funny to compare that bill to this one about the uh, the affordable housing tax credits where no one testified in opposition and everyone said, this is great, we love it, let's go for it. The bill you're talking about was was sponsored by Senator Yovana Kinsella, and the gist is to give tenants a lot more rights and leeway when it comes to making late payments, when it comes to how rent is defined. It has restrictions on like what kind of fees you can include in your rent. It has restrictions on how much you can charge as as a late fee. Uh, I think it's a certain percentage of the, the rent that is charged. There's provisions related to like the move out process, getting your stuff back if you have been evicted. A lot of things going on with tenant rights in terms of if if you bring a civil action or if you get in a legal or bring a court case against your landlord. of the the things that a lot of the landlords and developers had an issue with was not being able to discriminate against someone if they're on government subsidies you would add that to a list of uh, non-discriminatory
2: classes of people yeah classes of people
0: yeah so like you know gender Gender. sexuality racial background that, that kind of stuff so it got a pretty warm uh reception from folks like from legal aid and from a lot of progressive groups but the developer landlord real estate community just absolutely hated this bill. Like, just uh, one of them calls it a slap in the face. They said it was just totally take away a lot of their rights. It would allow kind of tenants to walk all over them and to get away with a lot more stuff. So, I don't know what's going to happen with that. Uh, Senator Kinsella said she was working with the house, or apartment association to try and come with amendments for it. But at this point, I think there's just a lot of um, pressure. And, and another point, and I included this in the story, is that the real estate and development. Industry as a whole was the third biggest donor to, to legislators in the last election cycle, so they certainly have, I think, a lot of clout among the legislature.
2: I, I think this is such an interesting issue because you know there's these two sides to it, and of course we are renters, and we experienced in our Riley and I both lived in the same apartment complex, and so we experienced this situation where we were getting late fees that were really high and and maybe there was only like $200 late and it was, it was an error on the part of the payment system, but we got these really intense late fees. But then, you know, I talked to my dad who, who is renting out a property and and he's got a tenant that is, you know, four months behind in rent. And so he views it from that perspective of, of not being able to get his money back and and not being able to make his ends meet. So I think there's sort of at, Obviously, the two, the tension between these two sides, and, and trying to maybe strike a balance between these two extremes.
0: Yeah, it's very contentious. I think ever, anyone who's ever rented has had issues with, you know, making sure their payments are on time or dealing with their landlord. It's a very, you know, personal and fraught issue because again, landlords, if they're not getting rent, they're not getting anything for that unit. They're just kind of losing it. So there's a lot at stake for both sides because, you know, the the person living there doesn't want to lose their housing, and the the person renting it wants to make sure they're making a profit on it. So. I think that the, really that hearing was it struck a lot of nerves for a lot of people and you could see, you know, both sides have been have been hurt by, you know, someone on the other side of that that relationship not acting in the best way. So, it'll be interesting to see what comes of that and what what happens with with that bill definitely.
2: The other topic that is really emerging in the legislature is homelessness, and there were a couple bills that uh, are emerging in this issue. I listened to one from Assemblyman Tyrone Thompson. It's seeking to create this permanent commission on homelessness. And what it's doing is essentially this group has a strategic plan and they're bringing all the folks together to work on this issue and carry out this plan. And then we're also seeing a couple other bills, especially geared towards homeless youth ones that would make it easier for them to graduate even though maybe they're moving around from weekly motels to people's cars to couch surfing um, and potentially moving in and out of school zones. It would allow them to maybe bypass some of the requirements that schools place on them to graduate um, based on their unstable situation. And And I see we have a bill coming up too that would do something as simple as waive the fees to give people that are homeless a driver's license. Um, So often, you know, there's a a small fee to get a new driver's license. If someone had, in the middle of their experience with homelessness, misplaced their license, this would enable them to get that identification that is so vital to just participating in society. Um, So we're seeing not only the housing issues come up, but issues that deal with addressing homelessness. We're going to go ahead and jump to an interview with J.D. Klippenstein and Katana Barnes uh, to talk about kind of how they're receiving these bills that we're seeing in this session and their thoughts on what the chances are that the legislature is going to take some significant action on housing issues this session. Are you testifying on any specific proposals?
1: Yeah, so we'll have folks speaking in support of the SB-448, which is the Affordable Housing Tax Credit or the, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, which is in hearing this in five minutes. Yeah, so we're in support of that, uh, of that and all the bills that are coming out of Senator Ratty and the other folks that were on the Interim Committee. Um, so in addition to that, we'll, along with AB-456, which is the minimum wage bill, And then we have a couple of other, including SB 398, which is about affordable housing and empowering local governments to do more around affordable housing. So we'll be having lots of folks, uh, kind of what we call our rapid response team, which is folks who can either show up in person or show support electronically just as because it's about to get really, really hectic here and try to get things across the finish line.
2: How satisfied have you guys been with efforts to create the affordable housing and and maybe make policies at the local level that would be more friendly to Mm. um,
3: renters? I think over the past year that things are improving. It's just unfortunate that it had to get as bad as it is before our elected officials would start paying attention. Mm
1: -hmm. So I I really think that this is a a local and regional fight. Uh, Local focus sustains work. It sustains the ability to build power around issues. So if we're on this every other year cycle, if we're only focused on the legislature, it's hard to maintain momentum because you have this this year where you're off. So this idea of really locally working at the local level and at the state level at the same time and building greater engagement and shifting the public narrative that way, I think is what we've started to see the success around the local front is it builds momentum for today. And then we also need to figure out how the federal and state governments and the tools that are available to us there help increase wages and help to build more affordable housing.
2: Assemblyman Tyrone Thompson had a bill this morning to create a, a permanent commission that would address homelessness. Um, and they talked about the strategic plan that they have in the works and are, are working to implement. What can you tell us about what the strategic plan is statewide to really tackle the issue of homelessness?
1: So what I know of the strategic plan, so the Interagency Council on Homelessness, which is the what the AB 174 would officially establish, was created through an executive order, uh, I think in 2013. Which meant that it was wasn't funded, and it was it was much more of an ad hoc nature. So I think they've had the idea of more strategic plans yeah. oh that haven't come to fruition because of a lack of capacity to build a plan and actually implement it. I know from our engagement with the Washoe County Continuum of Care, the who would be a critical piece of this plan when you need to look at. Um, community case managers, you need case managers that are able to operate outside of just, if you're in this program, you get case management, but once you're housed, what happens? And that's, you know, there's a a shortcoming there. So I think part of the plan is identifying where are the critical gaps right now? And a huge part of that is once someone's out of a program, it's kind of like, all right, sink or swim. And we know that that doesn't work if someone's coming out of, especially chronic homelessness. So providing, finding other revenue streams and other ways of providing ongoing support to make sure someone maintains stable housing. and then at the end of the day we're very supportive of AB174, but we know that if we're not addressing housing, we could have the best plan in the world to address homelessness, and it won't if it only deals with like the immediate needs, it's not going to address the, the underlying cause of sustained homelessness and what, the economic insecurity that gets so many people there in the first place.
2: Do you feel like the legislator, legislature is doing enough to address uh, oh. driving the <laughs>
1: No, I think they're starting right. Like I want to, I want to be positive. Yes. I'm encouraged by the direction. Yes. Encouraged by the work, uh, by the bill that's being heard today, and I'm encouraged by a lot of that. I think that it's about 25 years late start, right? This is a long time in the making, and I would say that the we're while we're encouraged by that, we know that there's a lot more to do and. We wouldn't want any legislator to walk away from this session with the impression that they, they've done all that they can do to address the, the right. crisis around housing justice and economic dignity.
2: What's been the reception from the lawmakers that you guys have met with so far?
3: So far, um, I would say the majority of them are, are wonderful, and they've been really receptive to supporting the bills.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think a part of it is because it's the start of the, it's kind of the start of a bigger fight. So I do think that some of the housing bills that are being put forward are the ones that you'd we, want to, the lower hanging fruit, so to say. Um, I, so those have been received well and we're encouraged by that. One of the bills that we had looked at was SB 103. It would um, allow for developers to get certain fees waived in order to increase affordable housing. There had been an amendment language that would very clearly clarify that counties already, counties and cities already have the power to do things around rent control or uh, inclusionary zoning, and it was unfortunate to see that because those things were in it, people didn't want that. They they, they just wanted just the develop. They wanted to give fees to the developer. They didn't want to clarify that uh, cities could create rent control or rent stabilization policies or inclusionary zoning policies. And for us, that was discouraging because. It wasn't even actually creating those. It was just clarifying that, no, someone like you would be the ones who have the power to do that. So it was like they'd rather stop the democratic process from actually carrying itself out than risk having that conversation. So rather than letting democracy run its course and letting local folks decide what local policies they have, they just like, no, we don't want to shake, rock the boat on it. And we know that we won't address our housing crisis without really robust local tools. So we were encouraged to see that Senator Ratty brought forth SB 398, which is kind of her workaround since there was some grumbling about these amendments, uh, that this would provide clarifying language and and enabling language to empower counties and cities to do more of their own work. And I think that's where the reception hasn't been as warm, is that while we know there's a crisis and people are open to some of these suggestions, we still think there's this bigger imagination they need to be living into, and they need to be rethinking about the roles that they as state legislators and uh, the way they interact with local government. If we're going to address the housing crisis, we got to just kind of throw everything we got at it and not say, no, we can't have that conversation. Like, we're well beyond the point where we can say, oh, we don't need to talk about that. We should have everything on the table if we're going to truly address this crisis.
0: So, again, that was J.D. Klimpenstein and Katana Barnes from Action. Uh, That's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. You have ideas, criticism or even praise email us at ideas at the nvnd.com and please check out our site. If you haven't already, the Nevada remember to search for us on iTunes, Google play, Spotify, Stitcher, all your favorite podcast apps and rate and subscribe us as well. I want to thank Michelle for being here and a thank you to JD and Katana for speaking with us this week. Also a special thanks to our producer, Joey Lovato, who makes us sound
3: podcast
0: smooth. It's less fun with only two people. Uh, I'm Riley Snyder. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week. But if you go to a dollar store and you find a nickel, like in your car seat, uh, you add it to the 90 cents, then you can finally buy something. So this would allow um, the, what you laughing, Joey? <laughs>
1: you get 95 cents?
0: Oh, a nickel. Oh my
2: gosh, it's been a long day.